I would love this conversation, but I haven't had dinner, so let's oh, move no. on. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Order pizza. I will. Sounds good. Kind of in a snowstorm here, so I don't think they're delivering. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of snow in the Midwest these days. All right. Let me make sure I'm muted here. So, hello to everybody on YouTube land. It's good to see y'all. And everybody in the Zoom land. It's good to see you too. So, I'm going to pin my video because some people say on YouTube they can't see me too well if I don't pin my video. So, okay. So let's see, it is after seven o'clock. So we should we should pretend we're gonna get started at least. So we are in the middle of, well, we're kind of towards the end of Galatians three. And uh, we spent last time really concentrating on this one little section where Paul really walked through how even the Old Testament, the, the Gentiles are actually part of the intent of the death and resurrection of Christ. Yeah. Um, so we really walked through that and talked even about how Jesus became the curse of the law for us. And in him, then we become the righteousness of God. So that's what we worked on last week. This week, we're going to move on and we're going to talk about how Paul um, continues with this, this theme of Abraham. But he's going to make some different moves than he's made so far just to kind of continue the way he's looking and reading the Old Testament and seeing that that the the ministry of Jesus, the, the incarnation, birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and even second coming of Jesus is really um, part and parcel. This is all part of God's plan. And it's it's something that that was even prophesied and talked about even to Abraham. So that's kind of what we're going to continue to talk about tonight. So let's pray. And then if you have any questions, we can get to those. Let me start recording this and then we'll pray. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we rejoice for you call us your children. And we rejoice that we have a Heavenly Father who loves us, who sustains us and protects us, who provides for us. And we have a Savior who calls us brother, not because we have done anything wonderful that we deserve such fellowship, but because of your love for us. And so even as he calls us brothers, so he gives us of his spirit to guide us into all truth. We might read these words of scripture tonight and do so according to your will. So bless us, direct us to our savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Galatians 3. Any questions that you guys have for me? that you would like to ask. So let's go to number one then. If you think of something you're allowed to ask anytime, you know that it's free for all. So, but let's read Galatians chapter three, verses 15 through 20. Someone can read that for us. 15 through 20. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, thank you very much. Good. And I know we read that last week and even talked about it a little bit. We're just going to we're going to back up and do it again. Um, we'll do a little bit different emphasis this week on a couple of things. I just want to point out a couple of things that Paul's doing. So um, number one, how important are the words of scripture to Paul? Look at his argument here. What does he, what does he do that's actually quite notable by the way he's reading the Old Testament? Well, he calls attention to things that are plural or not plural. So he's yeah. looking at it precisely. Exactly. So this precision of even looking at what is plural and what is singular and actually driving theological meaning from that. And this is something that um, a lot of people have asked me over the years as I teach Bible study and as I teach at seminary and, and I, I talk to people about the word of God is a lot of people say, well, you know, I think you're kind of taking this too seriously or you're being too picky. And, you know, you, you know, what did people really read it this way? Or is it just kind of us studying this too much? We kind of get obsessed with the little words of scripture and the little language, you know, and, and the answer is, is that actually the apostles, the, the people who study the scriptures, they were reading this you know, to the letter and they're, and they're taking seriously the very, the very letters of the text they're reading. And, and this is one Maybe of the that reasons that, twice. that we do that is that we, we want to actually take the, the words of scripture very seriously and um, read them as God's revealed word, because this is the text that we have. And, and it's just, it's important for us to kind of see this in the apostles, that they are actually looking back at the, at the Old Testament scriptures and looking at not just overall concepts, but actually individual words and how God speaks and what are the actual words of his promises, what are the actual words of his law, and actually driving theology from the actual chosen words. So it's, it's kind of a way, as we look at this section of Paul, when we look at scripture, we want to be looking at kind of the overar overarching story of scripture, right? But we also want to be looking at the individual words. And, and what this means is that when we read the Old Testament, a lot of you hear me say things like, you know, it's all about Jesus. And, and so then you open the Old Testament, and you try to read it, and you don't find Jesus anywhere. He doesn't show up. It's hard to find him. You know, yeah, I've told you whenever God shows up, that's Jesus, and that's fine. But a lot of people don't know what to do. How do we read the Old Testament? Well, one thing we want to say is that not every single word and every, every single verse has a direct attachment to Jesus. It's not like you're going to say, well, um, you know, somebody had a son and whatever, and then all of a sudden you're saying, well, that's, that's really Jesus. No, it actually actually had a son and then even whatever. But but what we're saying is that is the movement of the entire Old Testament is actually to the cross of Christ. So the Old Testament actually is getting us to Jesus. Now, all the things that happened in the Old Testament actually did happen. And so we want to understand each individual event and all the words as getting us to Jesus. But but we also want to make sure we're, we're saying 
overall, the story of Israel is, is leading us to the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ. And then we say, well, within this overall story, we also look at the individual We'll look at the individual situations and the individual people involved and say those people and situations really happened. Somehow there's a T in there. Situate, there's an A in there. Um, situations. So those situations and people actually happened. And they also serve as prophecies to point us to Christ. Now, God is going to work these situations either in law ways to um, convict his people and even to punish his people, or he's going to work through situations in gospel ways to deliver his people. Well, then the same thing is going to be true of people. There are going to be people in the Old Testament who themselves are prophecies of Christ. So you think of someone like Isaiah, right, where he's actually called to, in his life, do things that live out the, the law and the gospel. You think of Hosea who's actually called to, to, in his marriage, actually foreshadow the love of Christ for the church. You think of somebody like Elijah, right, whose very life and ministry was a prophecy of both John the Baptist and Jesus. So, and then we can even look at the, the individual words that are used in certain passages, especially promises and, and direct things that talk about the coming savior. So when we read the, the Bible, we're wanting to read it kind of holistically, like the whole story. We're wanting to read the individual situations and even the people involved and even the individual words and say, how is this, this revelation of God pointing me to the fulfillment of God in Christ Jesus, because that's where we see God most clearly. That's where we see the fulfillment of the plan. That's where we see God on display in the flesh in the person of Jesus. So as you read the Old Testament, we're always looking ahead to Jesus saying, yeah, this all really happened. It's, it's actual history. And God is working through that to point us to the fulfillment of his promises in Christ. And then when you read the New Testament, we're actually doing the same thing. These are real people and real events. And God uses us to teach us how to live in Christ, right? So even the New Testament points us back to Christ and then also ahead of the second coming. Okay. So does that make a little bit, does that help at all? Does that help? Does that make sense? Any questions that that elicits? Doctor, I do have two questions actually, and yeah. they're sort of related and maybe you can comment on this uh, based on kind of what we've been talking about, Paul exegeting some very specific grammar, uh, which I've never, I'll, I'll just say, I don't hear a lot of that other than, you know, Lutheran theologians or some very high level, you know, others. Um, do we have hints about how uh, ancient peoples interpreted scripture? Did they understand? I mean, we talked today about verbal, inspired, you know, plenary. Do we have hints about whether they had any, I mean, did they consider it in that same way? That's my first question is about the actual nature of scriptures being specifically verbal. I mean, to be able to exegete like a, a plural, you know, and, and to mm -hmm. derive meaning from that. But then the second question I have is similar, which is, um, do we, you, you were just talking about the messianic nature of, of Judaism, of, of, you know, of God's people. Um, and, you know, on the Emmaus road and, and in other places, uh, Christ himself talks about, hey, you know, these, these are all about me. Uh, but as a messianic people, it seems like, I guess I'm wondering kind of in the same way, do we have clues or hints about how they reckoned stuff that wasn't immediately apparent to them as messianic? I mean, you would think that they would understand 
you know, hey, we come from, you know, Adam and Eve, and there was this proto-evangelion, and we're waiting for a Messiah, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, and yet we've got all these things that prophets say, and maybe they're talking about something else, and we just kind of do the traditions, and do, do, we, do we have hints about how they reckoned the messianic nature of their own faith as it relates to the scriptures? Those are my two questions. Well, okay, so the second of your questions was actually an essay on one of my PhD exams, so that's After convenient. Two hours of writing, I realized that I was not going to, be able to explain everything that question actually entailed. So the, the quick answer is yes, we know. And that's a huge question because that's basically all of Judaism in the, especially in the time of Jesus. That is, that is second temple Judaism. So I will answer that, but, but just know that that is a huge question and there's so many ways to talk about it, but we'll, I'll, I'll kind of explain one quick way. The first question was, um, the verbal inspiration nature of scripture or the verbal nature of scripture. Um, we actually do. We know how the Pharisees of Jesus day interpreted scripture. We know the methods that the rabbis used to interpret scripture. And they actually did. Um, we have these recorded. They wrote commentaries like we do. They would look at a passage and say, this means this, this word means this, this phrase means this historically, this is what that meant. Um, you had some interpretations that were very literal to the word, to the, to the actual, you know, the way the story went. There are others that were just wild, kind of like, well, when God says this, he meant something else. And you kind of go off on analogies and all those kind of things. Um, so those are both happening. Um, and there are different schools of thought on how to read the Old Testament scriptures. Even and that's not too, they're not too different from what we have today in Christianity. Either. Right. I just want to so, so that's still going. Um, people have always read ancient texts and kind of um, took them literally or took them as figurative and or some mix thereof um, and and we even have yeah so we have that we have that preserved for us in in manuscripts in books um, and then we also have where we don't have necessarily manuscripts and books we actually do have later rabbis referring to, to earlier teachings from you know hundreds of years before where they reference as this rabbi said when he talked about this text and then he'll quote this this thing, which is really an exegesis of the text, like looking up this word means this, and this word means this, and this phrase means this. Um, so we have that. Um, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of that is actually found there. We have these, these books that are actually commentaries on Old Testament books, just like we would have commentaries today, where somebody sits down and talks about what do the words of this passage mean? So yes, they did that. They also read in this holistic way that the history of the people of Israel teaches us this about God. Um, and teaches us this about his his um, interactions. Now, your second question about um, the messianic expectations. Like I said, that's that's a deep and varied question. Um, so let me let me attack it this way. Really going from this this idea, and and we talked about this a little bit before. So some of us hopefully be a little bit familiar. But I just I just I think this is the best way to think about what the people of Jesus's day we're probably thinking the Messiah would be, okay? Or something, or he would have something to do with this. I think that's the easiest way to say it. So remember, um, we're gonna skip thousands of years of history. So just forgive me, okay? But you got Adam and Eve, right? You got the fall, not like, as opposed to the winter, but who are also present, but the not Adam and Eve verse, and, and so you have Adam and Eve and the fall into sin, Cain and Abel, and so you have Genesis 1 through 11, right, which is all this history of whatever. And that gets us up to Noah and the flood and his sons and the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is chapter 11. Genesis chapter 12 through 50 are the patriarchs. So it's Adam, 
Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. Okay. And this becomes Israel. Okay. Now, Israel, they go from there into Egypt. And so then you have the Exodus. Okay. Now, at the Exodus, when you leave, when you leave Egypt and you and you go into the you go to Mount Sinai, and you're actually in Mount Sinai at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament from Exodus, what is it, 19 through Numbers chapter 10. So you're there for a long time. And the middle is Leviticus. And what happens at Exodus is that God's people are defined as God's people, oddly enough, and he is their God, right? And that's the way it is. I am your God and you are my people. That's the way it is. Okay. And they, so they go from there. Okay. And they go to the promised land. That's Joshua. And then in judges, uh, they live in the promised land, but not very well. And then what happens is after this comes, I didn't plan my board very well. I'm very sorry. After this comes the monarchy. Okay. Meaning they have a king. So after the book of Judges, they get a king. And this, and this is kind of what I want you guys to think about with the Old Testament, is that after all this, they get a king, and the first king is Saul, who's head and shoulders taller than anybody else, but doesn't work out so well. But the real king you're going to think about is King David. King David is the ideal king. He is the king that reigns after God's own heart. He is, the God, he is the king who was militarily the best king of Israel's history. He is the king where the, the kingdom was totally united under David. And he was the king that was really focused on Jerusalem as the city of God. Okay. As a matter of fact, it became Zion, which was the city of David. Okay. And this is the kingdom of God. So this is literally the kingdom of God. Okay. Well, after David came Solomon, which, which started off pretty well, and Solomon built the temple, so there's a lot good. But remember, Solomon messed up, too, and he kind of fell away from Yahweh. And the kingdom was richest under Solomon, but it wasn't as powerful and solid as it was under David. So we're not quite as good. And then after Solomon, the kingdom split in two, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, which led to the exile. Okay, so then the exile... Um, leaves the kingdom of God. Well, the king, the place, the kingdom of God is now empty. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple's been burned down. Um, the the promised land is empty. The people of God are gone, and the kingdom of God is evaporated. But we still have this promise that the son of David will reign forever. So what happens is David was anointed he was the anointed king matter of fact he's anointed several times in the story and remember messiah simply means anointed one so the the jewish messianic hope was to restore the kingdom of god and what they thought was well in 516 the southern kingdom came back from babylonian captivity and they resettled jerusalem pretty well not great but pretty well but the northern kingdom never came back okay and then Jerusalem was taken over. We talked about this last time, I think, or two times ago, with Alexander the Great and his sons and all that kind of stuff, and they took over. And so what happens is they're waiting for the kingdom of God to be restored by the son of David, who will be the Messiah. And when he comes, God's people will live in God's kingdom in the promised land. 
that's the Messiah. Okay. That's probably the best way to think about their, their messianic expectations is that they thought that the kingdom that was unified and fullest under David would be restored by the son of David in Jerusalem. And that would be the kingdom of God. So when Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God is in your midst, they're thinking, great, we are going to restore the promised land to David's borders. We're going to get rid of the enemies like David did, and we're going to establish Jerusalem as the city where God lives. Okay, so when Jesus starts talking kingdom of God language, you'll notice start people start saying to him, if you're bringing the kingdom of God, then you're the son of David, because those two things go together, right? You think of Palm Sunday, and that's actually what they say. And, and so this is the messianic expectation. Now, they're not, they're not necessarily reading Genesis 3.15 into this. They're not necessarily reading Isaiah 53 into this. They're not necessarily reading those kinds of texts. But they are reading things like Genesis 49 verse 10 which which says um that that when tribute comes to him or when shiloh comes to nobody knows how to read it but the funny thing is nobody knows how to read it but they know it's messianic the the jewish scholars say it's messianic and genesis 49 10 is actually the promise to judah and so they were actually expecting david's son obviously to be from the tribe of judah which makes sense and so these messianic expectations were kind of going around. And when they went back and read Deuteronomy, what they realized is that this messianic expectation of the kingdom of God will probably be attached to, um, um, how would you say it? It would be revolving around Torah. So what they wanted to do was make sure that the people that were Jews were were orienting their lives around reading the, the Torah, studying the Torah, doing Torah, okay? So then following the law. And so they believed that if they read Torah and followed the law, then God would send the Messiah to usher back in the kingdom of David, and they would live in the promised land as the people of God, okay? So the Sadducees, the Sadducees thought they were, they were going to do it through the temple. They thought if they restore the temple, then that's going to usher in this kingdom of God. They were, they were simply earthly focused. The Pharisees are the ones who are saying, no, 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 guys, we got to get every, every Jewish person to obey the law and that, that way live in Torah. And so they set up synagogues where they could teach all this stuff. And the Pharisees were the ones who were saying, we have to obey Torah. We have to obey the law in order to usher in the kingdom of God. Okay. And then you have other guys, the Essenes were like, that's all corrupt. We're going to go off by ourselves. You know, I'm glad that you went to that, uh, that uh, distinction between the Pharisees and Sadducees, because that was actually literally going to be my, my very next question was about the difference between having a resurrection or something spiritual going on. And the Sadducees would be like, no, there's not really any of that. Right. But, it, but it's but I stopped myself from asking that question because Christians even I mean, we 
And, and we have a, kind of a little bit of both, I guess, because, you know, we say, well, when we die, our body is separated from our spirit, we go to heaven. But ultimately, we are also looking for an earthly paradise when the world is remade. So it's not really that different in some ways. I guess we just have sort of a, a more, I guess, a more complete fulfillment of that in Christ. Well, no, we're we're very much not like the Sadducees. Um, we're actually very clo much closer to the eschatology of the Pharisees. The Sadducees right, exactly. had no spiritual existence at all. They just didn't right, exactly. exactly. Stuff. Um, but even our idea of a new heaven and new earth is tied up in a resurrection idea, which would, which is very much in line with what the Pharisees would have taught. The Pharisees, I'm telling hey. you, other than their occupation of the law, they were they were actually pretty good. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, Kevin. You know when you said the Pharisees thought if the if the Jews would just all obey the Torah, then they'd usher in the mess, messianic kingdom. It makes me think of years ago. I remember hearing some of the what would you say? The enthusiasts say, if we get a radio, if we can pipe the gospel all over the world, then Jesus right. has to come back. Right. Yeah. It's it's the same idea. It's the same idea is that we take these texts and we say, if we fulfill this, then God has to act. So we're going to do this to make God do that. And that's, I'm telling you right now, that's always bad. You don't want to be going down that road. You, we are not manipulating God. That is not how this works. The Bible is not a code book to tell you how to make God do what you think he ought to be doing. It, it, that's never the way this works, um, including in prayer. Prayer is not your opportunity to tell God how to do his job. And, and we just, that's something that always creeps into our theology and we really got to kind of guard against it. Okay. Which, which brings you back to, to what we're talking about with Galatians is when we do all this, understand and, and notice that when he's reading scripture this way, he's not just reading scripture this way and then making of wild interpretations about everything in life. He's reading it specifically about God's action to save his people through his promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the point is we're not just saying, you know, freak out about every word of scripture and then go just apply it generally. No, it's, it's very specifically that we read scripture focused on God's action to save his people in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is doing when he's going to study down to the letter, down to the word. He's, he's saying, you know, this helps us understand God's action to save us in Jesus Christ. And that's the same way we want to read the scripture. Um, all of this, even all this understanding and stuff, all this stuff we talk about, it, it helps us understand who is the son of David? Who is the Messiah? Well, it's Jesus. How does he bring the kingdom of God? Actually, by forgiveness of sins. And that's what that's what they kind of missed was that the, the the kingdom of God in our midst is not Jews fulfilling the law or or all of us learning to, to live in Torah. It's actually the, the word of God coming in our midst, forgiving our sins, conquering death in the grave on our behalf and giving to us resurrection. That's actually the kingdom of God. OK. Any any questions or thoughts so far? That was a lot for number one, but that's OK. Is not our sin bringing back Christ? The, the father knows the time and he's not telling anyone. So I don't, I don't think that we are to think that he is contingent on the things that we do to make that time come about. I think that he is determining the time and we just kind of let that be. I mean, he, he's not running out of patience with Satan, huh? <laughs> he is. Well, he knows the days. I mean, he's 
remember for him, time is not passing necessarily. So he's not like, I might have had enough of this, you know, right. I have, but he's not thinking that way. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Good. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Number two, why is it important that the promise came before the law? What's Paul's argument? That the promise is prime or said another way, the law is inferior to the promise. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is kind of striking just to, to some people, but Paul is actually making the argument the law is secondary. It's inferior to the promise. And this is kind of striking, right? I mean, this is kind of earth shattering to, to read if you're a Jew and Paul is saying the law is secondary is not as important. It's not as good as the promise. Okay. And, and this is just shocking. I mean, really, Paul, you're going to say this. And, and this, this is just, I mean, like we just talked about this kind of overthrows a lot of ideas, but, but it's not at, even this idea that Paul is getting across is really not that new. Now we know, and we talked about this a little bit last time that he talked about this 430 years beforehand. And remember 430 years, is simply shorthand for the ex for the time that they are in slavery in Egypt. That's all it is. Okay. And and the reason you use that as shorthand is it actually the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 40, tells us that they are in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. Now, obviously, Abraham was hundreds of years before the beginning of the exile, but that's not Paul's point. He's not counting actual dates. What he's saying is that you know the, the law came hundreds of years 430 years after so basically he's saying you have abraham and the promise then you have the time of captivity then you have the the torah given after the exodus okay so the law is given after the exodus so that's what paul's saying he's not counting years okay um so like i said 430 years that's just that's just another way to say the time they were in slavery in egypt Okay, so Dr. Kevin, I have a quick question. Yeah, go ahead. So how does that apply to back in Genesis? Because didn't God um, give their, basically their condemnation before he gave them the promise of a savior? So yeah. is that what the Jews would also be thinking sort of, or would they not be in that mindset thinking the law came before the promise in that sense? Yeah, so the the... The, the way that Paul is talking about law, is he's not talking about every pronouncement of God that's commandment. He's literally talking about the law that was given to Moses. Okay, so it's the law of Moses, which is, which is the, the, you know, what, what he received at Mount Sinai. Um, we'll look a little bit about the law in general and how this works, but even the law, the law of creation where, where God says, what, like, don't eat of this this tree, that's what you're talking about. Even that actually follows the gospel. Remember in Genesis 2, and well in Genesis 1 and 2, both chapters, God's action for mankind is the creation itself. The creation of man and woman 
is gospel. It's actually good news, right? And it's good. What does God say about it? It's good. Matter of fact, it's very good. So the actual good news of creation is the creation of, of man and woman by God as a gracious, gracious event. The law follows that, right? Do not eat. And then, you know, and then sin. And then we have another promise of grace, which really, what is the promise? The promise is that we're going to be back in our created state. We're going to be rescued from our fall to go back to the gospel, to the good news, right? So even, even in that situation, what you really have is, is the gospel, um, the promises first. Um, so, so let's look at that. The other place we want to go when you look at all of this is go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. What's in Exodus 20? Anybody know? Commandments. Ten Commandments. Good. Okay, so Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. This is the first getting of the Ten Commandments, which is fun. So to go to the very beginning of the chapter, Exodus 20, verses 1, well, 1 through 3. We'll just do 1 through 3 because the rest of the commandments, you guys know those. But this is even how it's structured, and this is part of Paul's argument as well. Um, in, a, in a larger level. So Exodus 20 verses 1 through 3. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he starts the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. So even in this instance, what we have is gospel first. How does he start? When he's going to give the Ten Commandments, he starts with gospel. I am God, and this is what I have done to save you. Right? So even the Ten Commandments start with the promise. Okay? Remember, in the Old Testament, the Exodus is God's action to save his people graciously. Okay, so the Exodus is God setting free his people from slavery in, in the Old Testament, which is kind of the Christ event of the Old Testament. So even when he gives the Ten Commandments, as Paul points out, he starts with promise. He starts with gospel. And, and this is so important for us. I just can't even emphasize this enough, is that God desires for you to know him first as a God who loves, as a God who saves, as a God who forgives, as a God who is with you, right? That's the primary revelation of God. When Jesus came, you guys all know John 3.16. Well, John 3.17 also says, for the Son came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? This is the primary, right? You used primary earlier. This is the primary thing that God wants us to know about him, is, the, is he is the God who works to save, right? And, and unfortunately, most people think of God the exact opposite way. They think of God as, as a bunch of rules. Um, or, and this is the other thing that's happening probably more prevalently in our society right now, is they think about a God who loves, but they don't attach that loving with salvation. 
Okay, remember, the God who loves is a God who loves in such a way that he saves us from our sins and reconciles us with him. He's not just a God who loves generically. You know, he's not just nice to everybody. He doesn't just tell us to get along. No, the love that we're talking about that God has is the love to save. Okay, and that's that's important, too, is that when we talk about this this God who is revealed first and foremost in promise and good news, that promise and that good news is tied up in saving us, forgiving our sins and giving us eternal life um, since we face the enemy of death. Okay. Does that make sense? Kevin? Kevin? I had one just comment about that because when I first read the question, my first gut reaction was, the promise came first because it's what we rely on in terms of what Christ did for us. And the law is secondary because we can't do anything to fulfill the law, but we follow the law because out of obedience and our love for God, we do that. And that's secondary to what he did for us. So that was kind of my gut reaction to the question when I first read it. It's really about placing your faith in the promise. And that's why the promise is far superior than the law. Right. That's exactly right. Very good. Very well said. That's exactly right. So the inference from what Paul is getting us to think about in the actual temporal primacy of the law is then, I mean, of the promise is then exactly what you said. So also in our, in our relationship to God, we, we rely on the, the good news of Jesus Christ that's what we trust in. And then we fulfill the law, not out of obligation, but out of thankfulness for what God has done for us. And that's exactly right. You said it very well. That's exactly right. Yep. Very good. Anybody else? Evan, you know, it seems like most of the pagan religions over time, you know, the, the, the God they worship is always angry and they have to appease him somehow. So it seems like that, that, thought that God's angry is in our human nature, our distorted view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, everybody, if they're ever honest with themselves, they realize that they're not perfect. And that um, if there's a, a divine being or a higher power or something that has a standard, we don't live up, we, we're in trouble. And then when you look around you and you see things that aren't right in this world, whether it be natural things or human things or whatever. And again, you kind of think, well, this isn't perfect. So if there's a divine being that's over in charge of all of this, why would this not be perfect? Is there something that's broken? And so what happens is we realize that we're in a position where um, we need to do something to fix that because we've messed something up or there's something that is messed up. And so that's why most religions then reflect this as um, God's anger is seen or God's whatever being upset is seen in these things that aren't going right. And it's our position to fix them. Then so they stop going badly and start going well. Right. And that's, that's really the idea of a lot of sacrificial systems is that like, well, um, <clears throat> I need God to like me so that when I'm traveling, he doesn't, you know, wreck my car. So I'm going to do something to appease God for my journey tomorrow. So I'm going to sacrifice to whatever. And, and that's really uh, the basis of most religions in, in some way, shape or form. Um, that's one of the reasons that, that Jesus is so revolutionary where he, he literally flips it and he says, 
God will be the one who reconciles. God will be the one that fixes the broken, right? Not you. Yes, you're broken. Yes, this world is broken. Yes, the creator has standards. And yes, it's obvious that no one has lived up to those standards, but God is going to fix it himself. And then that becomes the actual ministry of Jesus is to, is to restore the broken creation, not to wait for the creation to fix itself or to, or to appease God, but to simply come and to be God with us, to, to be the one who reconciles sinners to God by taking sin on himself. Like Paul said earlier in, in Galatians 3, um, the one who doesn't have any reason to be cursed becomes a curse, right? He takes the curse on himself. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the movement that, that Jesus brings that, that actually catches everyone off guard. To be totally blunt, they nobody expects it. Okay, good, very good. Any other thoughts or questions? I have one. So, mm -hmm. is is Christianity the only religion that you can't earn your way to a? You can't earn your way to heaven. Well. <laughs> I know what you mean, but I'm going to answer it this way. You can't earn your way in any religion. Right. Right. They might think you can, but you can't. Um, Christianity is the only major religion that teaches grace as the exclusive way to be saved. There are some branches of other religions that have grace as the primary method of being reconciled to the divine. But Christianity is the only religion that is entirely, the, the salvation part of the religion is entirely based on grace entirely based on God's action and not ours. It's the only one. And you know, if you, if you think, uh, if you think that out a little farther, I mean, that's just, it's not human nature, grace, right. forgiveness. That's just not, that's just not who we are as humans. No, the hardest, the hardest message of Christianity is grace because I have absolutely nothing to do with my salvation. It's just the, the most, the most important thing about me I'm entirely passive and it's just totally contrary to everything we think. We think that, you know, there's gotta be some, something that I did. There's gotta be some measure in me. There's gotta be something that differentiates between this person, and that person. But when it comes to salvation, this, this teaching of absolute grace and absolute divine monergism, it's actually hard for us to even comprehend, let alone be okay with. Uh, most people are actually quite offended by the message of the cross because it, it does remove us from being active participants in our salvation. Mm -hmm. Which is, by the way, really good news when you think about it, but, but it's hard to swallow at the same time. Okay, good. So let's go to number three. Why does the law need an intermediary? This is really interesting. Um, so he says, so law was added because of transgressions. We'll, we'll kind of look at that later. Um, until offspring should come whom the promise had made. And it was put in place through angels. So look at verse 19, the end of 19. The law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay. Now this is a strange passage. Let's just be honest. This is a very strange passage. But why did the law need an intermediary and even angels, which again, is just the word for messengers. But 
but why did it need that? Or is the promise doesn't? I think it goes back to number two, where we said the promise is prime or the law is lesser than the uh -huh. promise. So God gives us the promise and has others give us the law. Right. Good. Good. So what, what Paul is getting us to think about, very good, very nicely said, is that the gospel or the promise is directly from God. He speaks it, right? The law is through a mediator, okay? It's, it's the angels and then the Moses and then to us, right? Whereas the gospel is just God to us. And this is, like I said, this is a strange passage. A lot, a lot of people write a lot of, on what this means and how it works out. But this is simply the way that that the people read the Old Testament is that they actually talked about the Torah was given to Moses through angels. Okay. And one thing that we think about is the law, it actually kills. Okay. And if, if God shows up with just the law, what's going to happen? Everybody dies. Dies. Nobody can stand before God under the lens of the law. Nobody can stand before God under the law. Okay. So we need an intermediary. What happens when God shows up with the gospel? Everybody yeah. lives. Yeah. So we don't need an intermediary because all we get is life. If God shows up with the law and there's no intermediary, we all die. But with a intermediary, then we're not, it's not going to kill us immediately. It will kill us eventually, but it's not going to kill us immediately. But the promise doesn't need that because it simply gives us life. Okay. And this actually, I want you to, to turn in your scriptures, in your New Testament scriptures, turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter one. Okay. I think this is just, just a great passage. Um, whether or not Paul wrote Hebrews, it doesn't really matter. But but it, this this passage kind of um, is is one that I just think about when I read this one in Galatians three about the intermediary and, and the the promise. I just think this is kind of a passage to think about. So Hebrews chapter one, the very first verse of the book. So Hebrews one one and two. Hebrews one one and two. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom we appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Okay. So in, in many and various ways, he talked to our, the, our forefathers of the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay. And so then remember that and then go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. You guys know these verses because we look at them over and over, but I just I want to kind of drill them in our heads. Is these, these are kind of where these terms come together and where this theology kind of comes together for us. For So 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Maybe verse 6. Yeah, verse 5 is good enough. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So now 
what happens is what is, oh, well, hmm. okay. Keep that in your minds and go back to Galatians, but go to Galatians chapter four instead of Galatians chapter three. We'll just kind of piece this together a little bit more. So Galatians four, four and five. Okay, Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, you see what happens is that this mediator who is Jesus Christ actually stands between us and God. That is the gospel, right? That is the good news. Him standing between us and God is the good news. That is the promise. But he also, look at this. He also stands under the law. Jesus actually was born under the law in order to redeem us who are under the law. So not only did Jesus come to be the gospel, but Jesus actually also came to be under the law for us. So that now, because he stood under the law, we are moved into the gospel, okay? So he takes this. He takes this. He takes what the law does. It kills. Jesus takes that on himself so that we could be adopted into God's family. And what you get now is when God shows up, you get gospel. You don't get law, you get gospel because of Jesus. And this is what's going to happen on the last day. God will show up and you will not be killed by the law. You will be saved because of his promise in Jesus Christ. Okay? And so I'm just trying to show you how, how Paul kind of puts all of this together. He's running all of this together to kind of go, how does, how does this all work where we're taking the law seriously? It's the word of God. It's the will of God. We're taking it seriously. And yet that's not how we, how we primarily relate to God. Why? Well, the promise was first. The law was only there because of our sin. And now, even in this, in this reality,